you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, Genesis 28, as we continue our journey through this amazing book, tonight we land on a somewhat familiar chapter for many of you, we'll cover the whole chapter tonight, but I don't know if you've ever, you know, pondered some of the, the seemingly almost I hate to use the phrase nonsensical, but from a human perspective, God using Jacob seems like, what are you thinking? You know, why would you use someone whose name means heel catcher? (laughs) He's a schemer. He's a liar. He, He seems to go the wrong direction frequently and often. Uh, he he's he almost has up to this point anyway not exactly the deepest character that you would think well you know what i'm just going to birth my chosen people out of him it almost doesn't make any sense from a human perspective and maybe for some of you it actually makes no sense at all from any kind of perspective and so jacob really is kind of an intriguing guy and, and yet where I've settled personally on on Jacob is I'm so thankful for Jacob just like I'm thankful for Peter. Amen? I'm thankful for Abraham, you know, a guy that also had his flaws. I'm thankful for almost all the apostles. When I look at Jacob, I, I have to look at Jacob and I go, man, this is God's grace at work in somebody's life. This is a miracle-working God taking somebody who's not only flawed and failed, but somebody who oftentimes uh, pretty much does exactly what God tells him not to do. And we see Jacob's life tonight, and we also see that not only can God use a man like Jacob, but he doesn't always choose the people that we choose. Because see, the flip side of this is, you can kind of almost feel a little bit sorry for Esau, amen? You kind of look at him and he, he gets a little bit of the short end of the deal here. And not only that, from a guy's perspective, he's, you know, he kind of wears flannel and sorrels and kills his own meat and, you know, he probably built his own log cabin. I mean, he's kind of a man's man, a guy's guy. There's a lot to actually admire in poor Esau, and yet God sees past these external things. You see, because in our humanness, we have a tendency to look at the things that we can see. So we see the flaws of Jacob, and we see the flaws of Esau, but we kind of compare them, and we go, you know, well, almost looks like Esau is actually a better choice. But God sees things we don't see, Amen. And that becomes very evident in chapter 28. So would you pray with me and we'll uh, take the entire chapter tonight, chapter 28 here in the book of Genesis. Father, we thank you. (laughs) Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are higher than our ways. Neither can we know them nor can we find them out. As high as the heights of the heaven are above the earth, Lord, so are your ways higher than my ways, our ways as human beings. God, you see past our flaws, you see past our faults, you see past our fakeness, Lord, you see past the things that we pretend, 
Lord, you look directly into our hearts and you're not fooled, you're not misled by any of our shenanigans. And so, Lord, we thank you that you choose perfectly and you chose Jacob. Even though his name means supplanter or heel catcher, Lord, you, you knew what kind of man was inside of this man that to us looks pretty flawed. But Lord, you saw past all of that. I pray that you would do the same with us, Lord. That you'd take our weaknesses and somehow turn them into strengths. God, that you'd mold us and shape us and make us more like Jesus tonight. Bless us as we study your word. We ask these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You know, it's interesting to me as I was looking through a couple of different commentaries and some word studies. I was looking, just in case I was wrong, to see if ever in the course of the Bible there's ever a negative word said about Jacob, and there isn't one. There's not a single negative thing said by God about Jacob. Esau and and Laban have a couple of things to say, but they're a little bit prejudiced in the way that they would look at at, uh, poor Jacob. But God doesn't highlight his faults. That's a word for us. If God doesn't highlight people's faults, then I think maybe the Lord's trying to tell us we shouldn't either. We, we do have to, to look at the things that are going on in each other's lives and, and give wise counsel, good counsel. But we also need to be gracious and kind and tender and, and correct in a way that the Lord can use that correction for his good and for his glory. And we certainly see that uh, here in the life of Jacob. He's going to be the head of a new nation. Uh, he will develop some wonderful character, some godly character. But Jacob is a, is a perfect picture, if you will, of exactly what Paul was getting to when he said there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he, he just reminds us God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the, the base things. He actually somehow can, can look past all the stuff that we see and all the things that we believe are going to happen and accomplishes his things, his, his goals, his purposes, his plans. As I was looking at Isaiah 55, because we were kind of in a little bit of that latter part of the book of Isaiah this morning, and, and there when you get just a couple chapters over from this incredible messianic picture, Isaiah the prophet actually sees that, that same vision, my thoughts are not your thoughts. God knows things that you don't know. God sees things that you don't see and I don't see. He understands from a perfect perspective. We understand from an imperfect perspective. Amen? So as we think on those things, let's pick up in verse 1. We'll take the first half and then we'll dig into the second half in a little bit. Verse 1 here in Genesis 28. And then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, I want you to check this out. Because you have a flawed man in Isaac, you have a flawed man in Jacob, but the word of the Lord is still true. You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. In other words, he's saying don't be unequally yoked. Do do not go out into the world. Just because I've allowed you some privilege here to do some things that I didn't really approve of, I let you get away with them, basically, Make no mistake, my character did not change. God's character never changes. 
He's not ever okay with sin. He's not ever okay with our compromise. He's not ever okay with lying. He's not ever okay with deceiving. He's just not okay with those things. And so just because God allows something in your life, make no mistake, it doesn't mean he approves of it. And so in order that Jacob doesn't get the wrong thinking going on here, he says, look, I want to remind you of something. I want you to make sure that you take a wife from amongst people who honor my name. Do not take a wife like Esau has already done twice from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Padan Aram, uh, which is the field of Aram. And it is in what we would call modern day Iraq, but at the time it was Mesopotamia, so northern Iraq, close to uh, the region that we would call Armenia, they're in Turkey, and to the house, house of Bethuel. And Bethuel and Bethol are exactly the same word, it means house of God. Go to the house of God, your mother's father. And take yourself a wife there from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. That you may be an assembly of peoples. In other words, he's giving the Abrahamic blessing uh, in a kind of redacted format. To you and to your descendants, I give you the blessing of Abraham. To your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And so Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Padan Aram, and to Laban, to the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, and sent him away to Padan Aram, to take himself a wife from there, And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Padan Aram. Now also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father. Now here's where we pick up on what God already knew. Here's where we get a little insight to what God had clearly seen and is likely the reason that God's made the choice that he's made. Because here, he knows that these don't please Isaac, obviously does not please God. And so Esau went to Ishmael and took Mathala, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, sister of Nebojoth, to be his wife, in addition to the wives he already had. So he's doing exactly what Jacob has been instructed not to do. And so let's focus in on this a little bit because Jacob's off on on another wife expedition, if you will. Seems to be a common theme here in the early goings in the middle half, middle part of, of the book of Genesis. And so... Esau's two heathen wives, if you remember, have been a major aggravation to the family, amen? So, so here you have Jacob doing what God's asked him to do. In spite of all his flaws, he's still actually hearing from the Lord. And I've sat down and talked with people that have a besetting sin in their life. There's something that goes on with them that they're not as victorious as they could be and should be. 
And yet they still desire to hear from the Lord. You still see them doing things that are godly and good. Part of the problem is, is when you get to that place to where you no longer desire to do the things that please the Lord. And so you can see the difference in the heart between these two men. Jacob's got the covenant blessing already. It's, it's, it's super important that we recognize that God's already made that choice. Now he has to marry the right woman. So he's actually going to be the one who's going to bring forth the 12 tribes. And so God's reminding him of one central thing. It's like your family is kind of messed up when it comes to marriage. They keep going a little bit up and down. And so I'm telling you, I want you to marry the right woman. So don't marry from the women here in Canaan. Not of the pagans. And so he's basically saying, look, just just because they're beautiful, just because they're good looking, I want you to take go the right direction. Paul writes much the same thing, and really it's an instruction to, maybe you're here tonight, you're single, and, you're, and your heart is to be married. Maybe you're here and you're not quite sure what God wants for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, verse that we'll get to in our study through 2 Corinthians. And it says there very, very plainly, do not be unequally yoked. And in case, you know, we're, we're not quite sure what that means, together with unbelievers, that ought to be simple enough for us. This is so important to the Lord, and it is such a place of tragedy in the lives of believers. I cannot even tell you how many people that love the Lord because of their lack of patience with God's plans, because they're being told by their friends, well, my biological clock is ticking. And I'm not actually mocking. I'm saying you have to be careful because the world is going to give you some really bad advice. And that bad advice comes like this. Well, you know, he's a Christian in waiting. He just needs you so that he'll come to faith in Christ. And as well-meaning and well-intentioned as that statement may be, it also is untrue. Because God's word to us as humankind is do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. And that means if you're getting to the most intimate of all human relationships, husband and wife, and you're in that stage where you're more than friends, and you think that might be somebody that's interested in you, the single question, the one question, male or female, the first question you need to ask is, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ personally? Not do you have a car. (laughs) Do you have more than eight bucks in your checking account? Not while you're good looking or you're handsome. If you're a Christian, the first thing that should concern you is, is that person a fellow believer? Because nothing else will matter if that's not true and you're really a child of God. 
If you're really a child of God, the first thing that is going to come into your married life that is, that is going to be a problem is if you are walking with Jesus and your spouse is not walking with Jesus. It will be the central problem in your life. Paul goes on and says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion, what deep fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? In other words, what has Jesus to do with the devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Jacob gets the Old Testament version of that verse, those verses. He says, look, I want you to marry properly because you are going to be the one that's going to set the standard for the whole of the chosen people. My people, Israel. You are going to be in the lineage of Jesus himself. From you is going to come the Messiah. And we need to get this part right. Brothers and sisters, the most important decision beyond your own decision personally to follow Jesus Christ is who will you marry? That's it. If God's called you into singleness, then you will hear that from the Lord. But if he's called you to be married, the next most important decision is who will you marry? Because you're going to take the two and become one and you cannot have an unequally yoked set of oxen because here's what happens and here's the picture of it. If you got an oxen that's heading to the west and you got one heading to the east, guess what's going to happen? They're going nowhere fast because they're going to tug against each other. And so Jacob is getting that message from the Lord. He's saying, look, this is important. You've received the blessing that came from Abraham. It's being passed on to you, Jacob. Which eventually will make its way down, not not in the sense that we have become the chosen people, but we have inherited uh, that, that blessing, the blessing of Abraham comes upon the Gentiles, at least in part, because we are inheritors of the promise through Jesus, who was Jewish. Amen? This is Paul would write to the church at Galatia. Esau's response to that is, I don't care. Them Canaanite women, whoa! Looking good. And so Esau, he's thinking, he's thinking with carnality in mind. Jacob's thinking, you know what? I've messed up enough already. I'm going to go the right direction now. I'm actually going to listen to God. This is a beautiful thing for us because you can make mistakes and God can help you. And he will instruct you and he'll remind you and he'll show you a different way in a different direction. In this case, it's gonna, this is not an easy journey. This is a 500-mile trip. He's going to take from the land of Canaan, the promised land. He's going to go back through the desert. He's going to go back over to modern-day Iraq because it's there that he's going to find his bride. Make sure that if God tells you to do something, 
And no matter what it costs, and no matter what you think about the decision in your carnal way of understanding it, that if God has clearly spoken, that you do it. You can avoid a lot of problems in life by actually doing what God tells you to do, hearing from the Lord. And we see that as we pick up now in verse 10. And now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And remember, Abraham originally came at least through Haran as he sojourned there for a bit when he left her of Chaldees. And so he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night. And because the sun had set, he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed. Now, I don't know how much dreaming I'd do if I used a stone for a pillow, but it nonetheless is exactly what Scripture says, and we're going to follow it through because we trust the Lord that what he says is true. Amen? And then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder that was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there were angels ascending and descending on it, angels of God. It's the only place in the entire Scripture that we find this word that's translated ladder, and we'll look at that in a couple of minutes. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south, And in you and your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now God is confirming what Isaac has already told Jacob. God personally is speaking this message. This is the very thing that happens to us when someone tells us what God's word says about something and we hear it from them and then God confirms that in your own heart. So this is being reinforced. This is God now saying, no, what your dad told you is true. You're it. You are going to bring forth Messiah is ultimately where this goes. And notice verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land where I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely The Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. You see, he had to take that journey of faith. He did not know what he was going to find when he got there. Can I tell you the key ingredient to faith is you do not know what you're going to find until you get there. That's why it's faith. As the writer of Hebrews would, would remind us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it is the substance of, substance of things hoped for and yet not seen. It has substance, but we can't see them yet. And so we need to take those steps of faith. We need to step out. He didn't know it, but God was there before he got there. God was there when he was there, and God was going to go with him on the journey back. God's not going to leave him. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? And that word afraid there is actually in awe. 
He's, he's in awe of what God is doing in his life. I, I had no idea that I was going to travel across this desert land. I'm going to park myself here and I'm going to be looking for a wife and God's going to speak to me. And God's going to tell me that he, he's got it. And this is none other than the house of God, Bethel. When you see house of God, that's the word Bethel. And this is the gate of heaven. It's like, it's like I'm sitting right here at the gate of heaven. This ladder that I'm seeing with angels ascending and descending, going up and down. It's like I'm right here and God is here himself. And then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and he set it up as a pillar or as a monument. There's another word there. Poured oil on top of it signifying that he was making an offering from it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz, which can mean abandoned. It's like it went from being a place that God wasn't, but when a man of God got to the place where he was going to be there, then God was with him. So it went from being abandoned to a place that's called Bethel, the house of God. Wherever God's people go, God's there. Where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is also in the midst of them. And of course, God is everywhere simultaneously. But the presence of God is felt by the people of God. The understanding of the things of God are known by the people of God. So when the people of God show up, God actually has a reliable witness in that place. And so here's Jacob. Now he's God's man. He's opening up new understanding to the people that he's with. And so he rises up and Jacob makes a vow saying, if God will be with me, which is not a question, by the way, it demands a negative answer. This is rhetorical. He's saying God is going to be with me. The if is not the question. He's basically saying, if God's going to be with me, I'm I'm good. And keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and put clothing on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And so Jacob now not only hears from the Lord, but he starts this, this, this incredible journey of faith. He's just like, God's going to go with me, and wherever God says to go, that's where I'm going to go. Now, I'm going to tell you that that is a place that it takes an awful lot of people a very long time to get to. It's a place in my own life. I look back on my early walk with the Lord, and there's this, this high, and you, you come to faith, and you're like, man, you're just on fire for the Lord, and you're a Jesus freak, and you, know, you, just, you just want to do everything that God's called you to do. And then you hit two trials, and the second one, you're, well, I'm not sure about this God thing. <laughs> journeys of faith are exactly that. They're journeys of faith, and they're long. They last a lifetime. And so often when we, we look at our, our own relationship with the Lord, we kind of judge where we are by where other people are. And that's the wrong thing to do. Because your walk is your walk and my walk is my walk and I'm not walking yours and you're not walking mine. 
I may be in a place because God purposely has me there, and if you were in that place, it would not go well for you, and vice versa. God is a personal God. He's made promises to you personally, to me personally, also to us corporately. But he's a personal God, and he sends us on a personal journey. And so now you have this this guy that doesn't really seem fit for a, a camping expedition, to, to go on a 500-mile journey. You know, that's the type of expedition that we would have all gone, you know, let's get Esau. Because on the way, he can hunt, he can kill his own food, he can make stew, he's good. You see, we would have sent Esau on this journey. That's what the flesh does. The flesh looks at the outside. The flesh looks at the things that we can see. And God looks at the heart. And what we wouldn't have known, but what God did know, was that Jacob was kind of done with this scheming. He learned that lesson. Can I tell you one of the things that, that I have to deal with frequently and often? Is I have to watch people go through stuff over and over and over again because I'm not God. And I can give them counsel. I can say, this is what God's word says. I can go, please don't do that. Or please do do this. I believe the Lord's leading this direction. But at the end of the day, you all have to take your own personal steps of faith. And if all I do is simply judge what I can see, then I'm not going to be much help to anybody. Because what I can see is limited. What God sees is eternal. And so learn in your own life to not quickly judge what you see with your eyes. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, you know, there's just no way in the world that particular person is going to ever be used of the Lord. And then three weeks later, they're a pastor. You know, it's just, or you look and it's just like, man, they're destined for absolute marvelous things before the Lord. And they go right off, you know, into some form of carnality. God alone sees those things from the perfect perspective. Our goal is to just speak what God's spoken into our lives, to encourage people, to bless them, to love on them, to help them grow as best as we possibly can. Our job is not to judge everything in an eternal perspective. That's why sometimes when people come to me and say they know that they know that someone is saved or is not saved, I have a problem with that. Because I think there were a lot of people who would have looked at my life and said, no, there's no way in the world that guy's saved. And I've seen people that the exact opposite is true. It's like, oh man, that's a really, you know, it's just super bad. His walk with the Lord's awesome. Her walk with the Lord is awesome. When in fact, it not only wasn't awesome, it was awful. It was terrible. It was a lie. It was a scheme. It was like Esau. But he has this angelic dream. As you note this dream, and I want to be really careful here. Can I, can I just kind of remind you that every single dream you have does not need to be interpreted by your friends? And I would highly advise you to not get in the habit of every time you have a dream, which is going to be every time you have Mexican food late at night. <laughs> it is for me. When you have dreams, they don't necessarily have eternal meaning, Okay. Just because you saw something in the clouds or, you know, you get a little vision that you think may be from the Lord, 
Can I just tell you the best thing you can do with dreams is pray about them. And if God really wants to confirm that, you'll keep having that same dream over and over and over and over and over again. And pretty soon God will knock on your door and hand you a piece of paper and say, yeah, the dream was from me. Uh, You need to hear directly from the Lord. I find a lot of people get caught up in kind of this whole interpretation of dreams thing. And frankly, I've not yet today met a stable person in the Lord who has ever had an experience repetitively of their dreams being the way God speaks to them. I've had people spoken to in dreams, but on an ongoing basis, the way he normally speaks to us is through his word. Through prayer. Through the counsel of other people who know the Lord. And through the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit will use dreams. But it's very infrequent. So be careful. You you don't need to look to the Lord to give you a dream about absolutely everything. But I want you to look at this angelic dream as it unfolds here. Because it is pretty amazing. And, and as, I, as I look at this whole thing, as, as Jacob is now uh, beginning this walk with the Lord, I want you to notice that Jacob actually didn't try and analyze this dream. He just repeats what he saw. He's not, well, I think this is that. He didn't go into similitudes about it or you know, try and figure out each and every component. The God of Abraham and Isaac was watching over him. He got something from this dream. And at times when, when we see things or hear things or experience things in our, in our sleep, um, we're, we're kind of looking to the wrong, we're, we're almost looking for something beyond the supernatural. It's like something that other people don't get. And th- those extreme things very often can lead us sideways. But there's some things we do know. And one of those is that the vision that is collected here is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. And, and one of those times by Jesus himself. And so we do know that angels are coming and going from the earth constantly. Uh, they, they travel back and forth between heaven and earth. And, and they are primarily, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, they're God's messengers, they're, they're God's caretakers. Um, they are literally at times watching over your life. And people will ask me, well, how many angels do I have? I don't know. Some of you need like 5,000 of them. Um, some of you have one and a half. I, you know, I, there, there is no place in scripture where it says, you know, every single person gets 53 angels. But we do know what they do. And those angels are, are, are God's, uh, in essence, uh, invisible normally, um, beings that come and, and act on our behalf. And so I can't tell you of every single situation in your life that was an angel that deflected that car on the freeway. Uh, me personally, I need a lot of angels when I'm on the freeway. So I think God like surrounds me with angels and they, you know, they just kind of keep and I never drive faster than my angels can fly. <laughs> Ever. No, they, they, they protect us at times. They're doing battle in the heavenlies. We know, because scripture says so, that when Satan fell, uh, he, he took a third of the host of heaven with him. And so there's however many angels there are in heaven, one third of them are on the wrong side. And so God at least has a two to one advantage, angels over demons, amen? Because scripture says that. And so we know that they're 
working on our behalf. They're watching over you. They're keeping guard. Scripture indicates there in Hebrews chapter 1, God in sundry times in diverse manners spoken times past by the, by the prophets. And so Jacob here is speaking prophetically into the future. Because he's actually seeing this. He's getting a view of what's going on between heaven and earth. The Hebrew word there for latter is, is salam. It's used only here. And it literally means a stairway. It's what we would say is a, a set of stairs. We could call it a ladder. And the reason that people call it a ladder is because it's hard to envision a set of stairs that extend from earth to heaven. A ladder is just easier to look at. It's like, well, I can imagine that. But what Jacob is seeing is this heavenly host that's coming and going. And Hebrews chapter 12 says there is an innumerable company of angels. But his angels, according to Psalm 103, ha, ha, excel in strength. They, they do his commandments. They hearken to the voice of his word. That as God speaks forth command into angelic beings, that they are literally doing the work of the Lord. So I, I can tell you, there are probably times in your life where something was about to happen and it didn't happen because God sent angels to deflect that situation. Luke chapter 15 reminds us that they take very special interest in God's people and very specifically in, in your salvation, that they're kind of working you around. I, and most of you can think back on your salvation experience and very often I will hear people recount something like this. I don't even know why I went to that place. I don't know why I went to church. I don't know, you know, it's like I was going someplace else and somebody called me and they said, can you come with me? And I wanted to say no, but some reason I said yes. And I, I'm just envisioning an angel just kind of squeezing you right into the front seat of that car, putting you in there and taking you to where you're going to hear the good news of the gospel. And the angels are going, yep what i'm here to do so they're real you know you have people that's like well you know angels they're not even real no they're real they're very real they are ministering spirits as hebrews chapter one says sent forth to minister to them that will be the heirs of salvation that's a plain declaration of hebrews chapter one so they are ministering to you for you alongside of you uh, working for god's good pleasure in your life their, their, their ministry is towards God's people. And so they're not so much run around, running around deflecting all kinds of things. They're actually ministering on your behalf, our behalf, the church's behalf. But what we see here is a, a link between heaven and earth. And because of what scripture tells us about angels, they actually, in, in Daniel chapter 9, we actually get a picture of angels flying swiftly so they can move back and forth we kind of think of if i were to climb more than a 10 foot ladder um, i'm going to do it in probably a couple of different steps i'm going to get up a ways and i'm going to rest and then i'm going to climb up a little further angels go top to bottom they're they're speeding up and down so don't get hung up on the practical things here and it also isn't telling us that if if you can find this ladder wherever it is that you can get at the bottom of it, you can look up to heaven and that's where God's throne is. There are some people that go so far as to take this so literally that if ever they could find out where this happens, it's like some spot on the earth 
Kind of like people that are looking for the doorway to the other place, Hades. And it's like, wow, if we could just get there, then we would see all the angels coming and going because they're, you know, they're just going back and forth between heaven. No, it's so huge that it probably encompasses much of the earth itself. And it extends into God's throne room in heaven. So it's a very, very large ladder. I don't know where it is. So don't ask me for a picture. I don't have one. NASA hasn't seen it. The Hubble telescope has no photos of Jacob's ladder. But I can tell you this, the ladder is a prophetic picture of Jesus. Because who's the only way? Jesus. Who's the only bridge between heaven and earth? Jesus. So I think this is really referring to the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ ultimately. In John 14, Jesus is basically making the claim, look, I am the bridge, I'm the ladder between heaven and earth. Because they that come and go, come and go on me. You you can't get there without him. And so it's almost like Jesus is kind of controlling the flow, if you will, of, of the angelic beings. Matter of fact, God himself in the person of Jesus, almost 2,000 years in the future from Jacob's day, speaking to a devout Israelite, Nathaniel, there in John chapter 1, gives him this picture. And in verse 51 of John 1, it says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So I think this is just a doorway that God opened up. Because we've seen already a couple of times when Jesus appeared on the earth. And so he comes and goes and now he's in heaven sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But those angels are still coming and going. Jesus is mediating. He's kind of controlling all the action, if you will. And so when you need some extra help, you have it. I think that's part of the promise here to Jacob. Remember what's been said to Jacob. Look, if you do what I ask you to do, if you will keep your part in this, here's what's going to be your, your lot in life. I'm going to take care of you. Now, he's not making it conditional. He's just saying, look, if you want the very best out of me, then I'm asking you to do the very best for me. In other words, keep my commands. Do what I ask you to do. And so here... Jesus is basically reminding us that he's got it covered. In Ephesians chapter 4, there's a picture, and remember what it says there, that when he, Jesus, ascended, he led captivity, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Who, is, who was that? It was the one who first descended. So Jesus can go anywhere he wants. He can go check on Abraham's bosom if he wants to. He can go to heaven. He can go back and forth. And so he has full command. Sometimes I think that we kind of have a picture of Satan's like this really bad guy. And Jesus is like this really good guy. And they're kind of almost equal. Can I just tell you, Satan is no equal to Jesus. That's like loser Satan. And, And Jesus has double the angelic host that Satan has at his disposal and Satan is a created being. He was an angel. So don't mistake who's on the winning side here. You know, sometimes people say, wow, you know, I just, I don't feel like I can really win. Yeah, you can. If you're in Christ, you're on the winning team. And God really does have it. He's he's got it under control. 
the end of this chapter, there's some significant things. I'll break these down a little bit. Notice the significant declaration that is made to Jacob. Jacob hears the Lord speak. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, man, you really messed up to this point. He doesn't get on his case. He says, look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm I'm making a promise. I made this promise to Abraham. I made this promise to Isaac. And I'm making this promise to you. And I will keep it. You know, when God speaks, he means what he says. So when you read the word, and as it pertains to us, he means it. That's why he wants us to live lives that are well-pleasing. Let our conduct be without covetousness. Just as Deuteronomy reminds us, as Joshua recorded for us. It's like, and then he goes on to say, I will never leave you or forsake you, says the Lord. You may feel at times like the Lord's like someplace else. The problem is, that's not the Lord left, that's that you moved. You went someplace where, where God's hand is not on you. You did the Esau thing. You're heading off to go see what the, the Canaanites look like. When you do that, then you do feel like the Lord left when in fact you moved. So be careful. It's the God of Jacob that David would write in Psalm 46. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That means hiding place. So when you feel like you're alone, when you feel like God's not around, when you feel like God doesn't have it under control, I would simply ask you to to look at your life and say, where have I run away from the refuge of the Lord? Because this promise is significant. This declaration is significant. Jacob is being told by God, I am with you. I'm going to take care of it. That promise in in this way is transferred to us as believers in Christ. Because the character traits of God are, are immutable. He doesn't have one set of characteristics for his chosen people Israel and another for his Gentile believing friends, us. He's good to both. He loves both. He has a special plan for Israel. But for all of his kids, he's got it. Jacob has to make a a significant decision to go with that declaration that God has made. Jacob, first look at his look at his surprise, look at his reverence, look at his what is called fear here, his surprise, if you will. I tell you that the beginning of the book of Proverbs starts that the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. It's how you actually learn how to use the knowledge that you have correctly. Jacob's getting that lesson. He's making a decision to do what God says one hundred percent of the time. You see, a lot of us kind of treat God like a stock portfolio. Well, I'll buy 20% of that and 15% of that and 40% of this and 33% of that. And we think that it's going to add up to 100. So our percentage of God is whatever we can get away with and still keep a little bit of carnality. And God's basically saying, look, I want you to be 100% in. I want you to be totally sold out. I want this decision that you make is is to completely follow me, to give me everything. 
to do what I tell you to do all the time. Not just on Sunday. George Barnett did a poll a number of years ago. And he was kind of interviewing Christians in their daily living on Monday. On Sunday, when they're in the parking lot at the church, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah, brother. On Monday, it's the bar, and they're using language they don't use on Sunday, and it was a completely different, it's like they're talking to somebody else. Don't have Sunday-only holiness. Don't have Sunday-only dedication to the Lord. Don't have Sunday-only a witness for the Lord. God wants all of us, and he wants all of us all the time. But that's a decision you have to make, I have to make. And it's very significant that we make that decision. Jacob makes that decision. saying, look, I'm going to be away from my father's house. I'm going to be gone for 20 years. But I'm trusting God when I get back, Canaan's going to be there waiting. That's somebody who's all in. That's somebody who has decided, I will follow Jesus. And so to remind himself of that covenant, he takes this stone wherein he sees this vision of this ladder. And he says, I'm going to make a memorial out of this thing. So he makes this now significant memorial. He's saying, look, I'm going to trust God. And so I'm going to pour oil on this stone. It makes no sense in a human sense. There's this rock that he's had his for a pillow and he he takes this expensive oil and he dumps it on the stone and he says god i'm telling you that i trust you because i just i just put the oil of the spirit over this and it's like i'm doing it i'm all in you know sometimes it's good for us to to make memorials to god and you can do it this way clear out your closet of them party clothes seriously Get rid of that music that isn't honoring to God. <clears throat> Make a memorial to the Lord. You've promised that you're going to follow him. You've said you're going to give him your whole life. Now go do something that memorializes it. Get out of that relationship that doesn't honor the Lord. Maybe that profession that, that God hasn't actually called you to, but it pays well. And I realize these are hard decisions. So I'm not telling you that I heard from the Lord about you specifically. But I'm telling you a lot of people kind of are half in with their relationship with the Lord. And when it comes down to actually doing something that says, I really love Jesus. Like taking your Bible to work. That's one of those crazy things. I mean, don't get carried away now. I mean, the whole Bible thing on on my desk, really? Somebody will see that. They'll think that I'm, a, yeah, that's the point. They'll think you're a Jesus freak. That's a memorial to the Lord. Lord, I love you and I want people to know it. Because it seems to indicate that Jacob's actually going to take this rock with him. It's like when the Lord spoke to me, he spoke to me and I'm going to keep this stone with me as a memorial to the fact that God spoke to me and I'm going to do what he told me to do. He turns around. I have a little, I have a little Jerusalem stone on, on my desk. And it says the same thing that my wedding ring says. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That is a memorial to my bride. 
that's me reminding myself that my wife very often is waiting for me. So when I'm sitting around the office and I'm jawing and I'm talking to somebody, it's late in the day, that's, Jeffrey, it's time to go home. You've been here long enough. You have a bride. And she would like to see you before it gets dark. It's a little stone. Those little things have an effect in our lives. When you give God the little things, watch and see if he doesn't change some of the big stuff too. Because he incrementally works. Build a memorial to the things that the Lord's done in your life. And let people see it. Be proud of it. You know, it's crazy. I, you know, we, I love... I love every kind of Asian food there is, just saying. So I don't care whether it's Chinese or Korean barbecue or Japanese, I'm like, I'm in. And every time I go in there, it's like there's a little Buddha and there's a Buddha in the bathroom. We're, we're, we're on our vacation and the guy had a Buddha in the bathroom. I'm like, I'm on vacation, Lord, there's a Buddha in the bathroom. But at least he was dedicated. How many Christians you wouldn't even know if you went into their house? Because the magazines on the table in their living room don't say anything about Jesus. Even heathens, people who don't know Jesus, often at least have memorials to their God. Do people know you're saved? Jacob made sure that people understood who his God was. There's a lesson in this as we close tonight. Even though Jacob has made the turn, even though Jacob is going the right direction, even though Jacob has made a memorial, even though this decision's been made by him and he's listening to the declaration of the Lord, he's still got some suffering he's going to undergo because he's made some bad decisions. Those bad decisions are going to be painful to him at times. He's still got a problem with his, with his brother Esau. He's still got a few things that are going to happen with Isaac. He actually repented, but repentance does not guarantee that you're going, to, guarantee that you're going to be totally free from the consequences of your sin. Now, praise God by his grace, very often that is the case. But not always. So don't get mad at God. And, and I'm saying this for this reason. I bumped into a lot of Christians. I talked to them. It's just like, well, you know, God just never let me off the hook for that one. Well, could it be that you never let God off the hook on that one? You didn't actually turn. So God's just reminding you over and over and over again because you're reminding him over and over and over again that this thing's still a part of your life. And so you suffer the consequences of that. We need to remember that before we engage in behavior that's contrary to the word of God. Jacob's going to pay a price for some of these things still. But praise God, significant sin is met by all-sufficient grace. Amen? You, you, you will never receive what you've actually earned. And no matter what God allows into your life as consequences, you, you will reap what you've sown. And God even buffers the, the reaping. God steps into that situation. It isn't as bad as it could be. It doesn't go all the way the direction it could go. 
God kind of shortcuts that very often. Jacob deceives Isaac. His father-in-law Laban is going to radically take advantage of him. So you can kind of see, it's like he's not totally free from some of the stuff that's come into his life. So in essence, God's reminds, look, I, just because I let you get by with this doesn't mean I approved of it, nor does it mean that you're totally free from the consequences. And one of the areas where I see this, and Pastor Pat and I were talking about this um, just before service, maybe a half hour or so. And I want to say this, this is not to condemn anyone in this room. One of the things that we have to deal with on a very, very regular basis is when someone gets into a situation in their married life and they choose to divorce their spouse for less than a biblical reason. Well, you know, there's this situation or that situation. Doesn't make enough money. I don't like the house we live in. Put on a couple extra pounds, you know, burned toast last week that's the third time in a row that toast has been flooded our home with smoke you know i mean that's a travesty of major proportions of course and i and i'm saying this because people make really poor decisions and those decisions end up affecting them for the rest of their life you need to radically consider what the lord is saying to you not what the world is saying you're okay to do because the world will probably tell you, well, you deserve better than him or her. The world will tell you that, you know, that situation is beyond repair. We have irreconcilable differences. Can I tell you there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences to God? There aren't any. From God's perspective, there are no irreconcilable differences. Let me prove that to you. The cross of Jesus. Because with that cross, he reconciled you and me to himself. If there was ever an irreconcilable difference, that would be it. But in Christ, when you have two people, both who are believers, be very, very careful what you allow into your married life because you can pay for the rest of your days for that decision. And it can be very, very, very painful. And God doesn't want that for you. So his word says, I hate divorce. I hate it. And he only ever allows it. He never ordains it. It's not ever his perfect plan. It can be an allowance. But it always bears exactly what God says it will bear. It will be painful. He may mitigate that pain. But God doesn't change his character. He doesn't change what he has to think on these things. And so be careful. Jacob uses a, a goat to deceive his father. Jacob's sons are going to use one to deceive him. During the years that he's going to work for Laban, he, he's going to endure all kinds of trials, both as a shepherd and a husband of multiple wives and a father of many children, and things are going to go all kinds of sideways for him. Good news. God's grace is sufficient. And God's going to redeem all of it. He's going to do great things with Jacob. And so don't be wearied. But my point is this, and I believe the point of Scripture, what, what's being said here to us, is you can limit the number of things that God has to deal with in your life by being obedient. 
You can choose a path that has less rocks rather than more rocks in it. You, you can walk a straight one or a curvy one. It's up to you. One that's really, really, really hard or one that's ostensibly easy, the choice is yours. That's where our obedience comes into the word of the Lord. Had Jacob from day one listened to everything that God said and did it, almost every single one of the problems that's in his life, we could easily see how they would have been eliminated. But instead he chose to kind of go down a road he shouldn't go down. So God in his grace takes care of those failures, those faults, those weaknesses. But Jacob has to suffer through the consequences of those things still. The Lord didn't fail Jacob, nor will he fail you or me. The Lord was gracious to Jacob. He's going to be gracious to you and me. But if we really want the very best out of God, if we want what God wants for us, then we need to listen to his voice. And as soon as we hear it, turn towards the Lord. Jacob finally turns towards the Lord. That's the good news. Give those things over to Jesus. Let him work on them. And know that God is with us. Amen? Just stand. We're going to pray. I'm going to have some pastors come forward. Eli's going to come back out with the worship team. And maybe you've got a couple of Jacob things you need to pray about tonight. And I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form condemningly. I think we all have those things. It's like we, we maybe think about them more than we should or entertain them more than we should. Maybe you need to just leave some of those things at the foot of the cross before you head home. So some pastors come up and are available for prayer. I want you just say, can you pray with me? I, I'd, I'd like to not ever look for a wife in Canaan again or a husband in Canaan again. Or I, I got a job with the Canaanites and I'd really like to have one that's a non-Canaanite job. Or maybe my television is on the Canaanite channel and I need to learn how to turn the Canaanites off. God's able. Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness, your mercy. Oh, Lord, your sweet grace in our lives. Lord, you're so kind to us. You have every right to work us over when we do dumb things, but you don't. But Lord, we also know that sometimes we get ourselves into trouble. And so Lord, help us with our areas of weakness, those things that we really need to turn over to you. Lord, do not snatch them back. Lord, sometimes we give you things and then we pull them right back out of your to-do box while you're working on them. And so God, would you help us to really trust you with the deep things in our lives. We thank you for the example of Jacob, Lord, that he has, he's turned towards you. And Lord, we tonight, as, as your people, turn towards you. Thank you for meeting us with more faith, extra grace, extra helping of mercy and gentleness and kindness. Lord, you're a good God. And you've been good to me, Lord. You've been good to my family, and I thank you. Pray that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.